Hello, it's Gail Hopkins, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversations. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. It is 11 a.m. Central Time on Thursday, October 30th. 2014. It's Davo on Clubhouse Conversation. I tell you the time because it's been about 12 hours ago since the Royals had their 2014 season end in heartbreaking fashion. They dropped Game 7 of the 2014 World Series last night to the San Francisco Giants 3-2. to But here we are 12 hours later. We can't stop thinking about the Royals. We can't stop honoring the Royals, whether it be the current day Royals here on Clubhouse Conversation or the Royals of yesteryear. And it, and it always makes me feel better to talk to guys who have played here, who have been here, who know the game of baseball better than I do. And one guy who certainly qualifies in both of those two categories is Gail Hopkins. He played for the Royals from 1971 to 1973, primarily as a first baseman. Pinch hitter, some DHing as well for Gail Hopkins, came up originally as a catcher through the Chicago White Sox organization after playing collegiately at Pepperdine. And Gail Hopkins, the only player in Major League history to appear in the big leagues and also earn an MD and PhD. He's gone on to be an orthopedic surgeon and, and teach and done so many things in his afterlife of baseball. Just an interesting guy who knows baseball as well as anyone. We'll talk to him about the good old days from 71 to 73. He here in KC, times with the White Sox and Dodgers. All that and so much more. Very excited to welcome him to Clubhouse Conversation, hopefully to cheer me up a little bit and cheer you up. Gail Hopkins, good morning. How are you doing and what's going on with you? Going pretty well. We you know, we live in West Virginia and my wife, it's a beautiful day here. The only thing bad about it is the Royals lost. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a tough series, but you and I were talking off the air about how good of a defensive ball club this was. Now, you think this might be the best defensive outfield you've ever seen before? I don't know of any outfield uh, uh, outfield defense that I've seen that has played better than I saw the Royals play. Uh, that, you know, there were a couple of good plays on San Francisco's side. They have the San Francisco did pretty well in center and on in right. But uh, if you look at at uh, what the guys, what the Royals outfielders did, and it's not it's not just three outfielders. Yeah. You know, I mean the way they're set up. I mean they got just four quality outfielders, and and so it was. I was very impressed with it. I can't. I was trying to remember, you know, because I played in the '60s and '70s, and I was trying to remember if there was an outfield that overall had as much speed and 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 I, I and just defensive abilities as as these guys did do. And I I just don't remember them right now. Uh, of course, I'm getting kind of old. Maybe my memory's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think your memory is perfect, especially if you think that, you know. <laughs> Uh, well, I was pretty impressed by him, I tell you that. And it wasn't just one guy. That's the thing. I mean, it's, it's all of them and the way they work together. Yeah, and you probably would not have liked facing Ventura or that bullpen either, I'm assuming, right? No, they look pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty uh, filthy stuff. Well, so let's kind of update everybody on you. So after your baseball career ended, you've earned four graduate degrees, and you've been an orthopedic surgeon for many years. You've taught a lot. Uh, you're also, I believe, the only former Major League player with an MD and a PhD, which means you have to be the, the smartest former Royal of all time, right? <laughs> uh, 
I, I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> <laughs> that just means I may have put in more time than some of the others did. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you know, I always tell people, uh, don't underestimate uh, those uh, baseball players, you know. Uh, when I was when I was coming up, I mean, everybody talked about how smart the the basketball players and all these guys were, you know. But listen, to those those guys that chew tobacco or spit all the time, like the ball players do, you know. Yeah. Uh, they may look kind of crude, but they're pretty smart boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to be to recognize the pitches and you know live live that lifestyle. So now. Oh yeah, no, it's a, it's great, but no, we've been care. Uh, we I'm, I've lived a blessed life, and uh, uh, we. After you know, after I left the Royals, I can you know I was going to school when I was playing with the Royals, right? And even before I joined them, so uh, it was I didn't go to school, uh, you know, med school and that afterwards because after I left Kansas City, I, I went out was with the Dodgers in '74, and then we after we got beat in the World Series by Oakland, uh, which I'd kind of gotten used to in Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, Oakland, right. In those years, they. They won it three years in a row. And, you know, they won it three years in a row, and their outfield wasn't nearly as good a defensive outfield as, as uh, the Royals. And yeah. they had some great players. You know, they had Rudy and uh, and, and played, and they had, uh, a real, they had a really good ball club. I mean, they won it three years in a row. But, uh, but they weren't nearly – they weren't as good a defensive players as the Royals have got. So yeah. – but anyways, I, I after that I went to Japan for three years and played over there. Uh, but I uh, and uh, got involved in the Japan series. We well, the club I was with in Hiroshima won the championship, and then we played in the Japan series too. So I got involved with a couple of the World Series here and World Series over there uh, when I was with the Dodgers. But uh, the uh, I I all that time when I was. When I was playing ball, I was actually studying. I, I had already started medical school. That is so cool. So, what, what kind of surgeries did you do the most then? For those who don't understand exactly what that means. Well, orthopedic surgery, you know, is uh, bones, musculoskeletal system, nervous system. So I, I did everything from uh, did a lot of sports medicine. Uh, you know, where you do like shoulders and elbows, things like that. Where you did uh, and. It was kind of interesting because when I started uh, in medicine, uh, or started in orthopedics, we were really just starting arthroscopy. And so it, it's interesting how, you know, life is a learning process. You know, even in baseball, you keep learning all the time, you know, from one pitch to another and one team, one game to another. You need to be learning and adjusting to what's going on. And in, in orthopedics, uh, when I started, uh, we used arthroscopes, but you looked at them actually through a little telescope, a little scope uh, with in your eye. It wasn't on a TV monitor, and and most of it was just done to look and see what it looked like. There wasn't a lot of operative things. Well, you know now, and by the time I finished, we were we were operating by looking at a TV monitor and cutting, making through little holes, and where we used to make big cuts, and so. It was just a big change in, in, in orthopedics uh, when I was doing it. But So I did a lot of that sports medicine. I did back surgery, did a lot of trauma where you have people get injured in car wrecks or falls or gunshot wounds, things like that. 
Now, do you have an opinion? You'd be a good person to ask about this. So back in your day, you know, the, the bullpen was much less utilized and, and the starters went deeper, and it seemed like you had less arm issues. And I don't know, maybe there wasn't, maybe because they didn't have Tommy John as an option, so maybe you didn't hear about it, or maybe some guys could have benefited. But, I mean, as far as staying healthy for pitchers and, and pitch count now and being babied, do you, have, do you have an opinion why there's been so many arm injuries and elbow issues? And in your opinion, what could they do about that? Well, I... Uh... Yeah, I got some opinions, but my opinions are, you know, are worth, if you got it nowadays, used to be, you could say, if you had 10 cents, then my opinion, you could get a cup of coffee. Now you got to <laughs> 350 to buy a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. But the opinion is probably worth about the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, there's, uh, I don't think, uh, uh, you are, uh, throwing overhand is an abnormal uh, activity, in a sense. Uh, it's not, and it puts a lot of stress on, on the shoulder, but especially on the elbow, and and throwing uh, when you get fellows and people that are big and strong and well trained, uh, even when you, even when you do the pitch counts, there's if they're throwing at maximum uh, effort, they're going to be putting tremendous. Uh,
goes on, you know, the pitcher's arms will get where they can't straighten their elbows out just from the changes that go on. And, and so you're not going to stop that if, if these guys are, are throwing at maximum effort. So do you, kind of, do you kind of buy the whole theory that an arm and an elbow only has so many pitches in it? No. No? No. There, there's some guy – there's – so much of it is going to be individualized to a person's delivery. You, you, you know, it's like you watch uh, from my position, okay, I grew up learning in baseball as a catcher uh, in the White Sox organization. I grew up uh, with a guy named uh, Ray Burroughs, who was a pitching coach, and he had a big impact on me and, and, uh, and the way I see pitching and, and some, of the, some of the aspects of catching and helping pitchers. And, you know, one of the fundamental things is for guys to get a, a proper, consistent delivery. And, uh, and you, can, you can predict uh, when you're watching pitchers throw. I mean, I watched Ventura the other night, and there were times when he got himself into a little trouble by being wild high. And, and, he, had, and, and he just was rushing his delivery. And that kid, once he gets down a consistent delivery, is going to be some, uh, can be somewhat awesome he is already but if he get once he gets a consistent delivery he's going to be very difficult to handle because then he's going to be controlling the ball and that's what ray burroughs used to ray bears used to say teach us was that you know you had to watch your pitchers and try to get them in a in a proper delivery and when they do that they're less likely to hurt their arm and and uh and they can pitch longer that they can pitch more into a game and they have more control. So I think, you know, with proper mechanics, uh, you're going to find pitchers will be able to pitch longer. Uh, and, and usually the guys that pitch long into careers have pretty good mechanics. Uh, you know, Tommy John was my roommate. And I was there when he tore his elbow in, 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 uh, in 74 uh, when he had the surgery in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, I was the first one to play catch with him when the cast came off. Huh. And he, our first, our first tossing the ball when his cast came off, uh, we were about eight feet apart, and he could hardly get the ball to me. It hurt so much. Huh. Uh, but he just worked at it. And and if you re- and if you would, would ever watched him pitch after that, and even before that, he just had a very consistent delivery, uh, and then let his his arm and his just the way do the work for him. Uh, but, uh, you know, those guys, uh, pitchers are, are going to be susceptible to those uh, elbow problems. There's, I think there is a magic. We might, orthopedic uh, people or coaches might debate that. But, you know, I think, I think history just tells you that. And so do the changes that take place in a pitcher's elbow. Yeah, well, it makes sense. So something else you've got to be really proud of, too, is that uh, both of your children have also become physicians. So kind of tell us more about them. Oh, yeah, I'm always happy to talk about my <laughs> kids and my family. My I wife. figured. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Leah was – my daughter is a big Kansas City fan. Really? Oh, uh, yeah, and, and, and we, were ta- we were talking last night uh, to watch – we were watching the games together, and then last uh, – surgery a couple weeks ago on back and so she stayed home she was a little sore she stayed home but we were talking during the game and 
she wasn't very happy. <laughs> <laughs> now we, you know, we really like Kansas City. My sister, uh, my sister lives in. My sister and my brother-in-law was at the first couple games. Oh, I didn't know. That's cool. Yeah, they live in Overland Park, okay. and uh, and they've lived there for I don't know twenty-five years or more. Oh and wow! So, uh, so we. We we like Kansas City. It was actually when I finished med school, it was tough not to end up in Kansas City area because you know we had a lot of friends in Chillicothe and and whole Kansas City. I really like Kansas City. I do too. I love it here. It's a great place. Yeah. Uh, but Leah is a uh, my she's that's our daughter. Uh, she is an internal medicine specialist and practices here in uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia, where we live. And then uh, our son. Uh, uh, his his name is Gail. Uh, he lives in uh, Southern California uh, and practices in Redlands, California, where he's a orthopedic spine and trauma surgeon. And uh, the big thing that Gail has is he's got our three grandsons. <laughs> right, right. Future royals. <laughs> yeah, please, please, we need them. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, and my wife is a nurse. Uh, she does. Uh, I stopped practicing uh, uh, about a year or so ago, and so she, uh, we're, she does other things. She takes care of all. She basically takes care of me and my mom and other people. So <laughs> she's yes. a busy woman. Bless her heart. Uh, well, so let's go back and start from the beginning of your life. Then you ready to go way back here and dust off the cobwebs in your brain? <laughs> uh, might be tough, Dave. <laughs> well. You grew up in Long Beach, California, so I've read that you'd spend all day and all night outside of your trailer. You'd hit baseballs against telephone poles, and you'd play kind of make-believe situations in your head. So, I mean, were you really that obsessed and that in love with baseball when you were growing up? Oh, I love sports. Yeah. I mean, I, I played baseball. Well, one of the things, you know, Southern California was great to grow up there because, you know, we could play baseball uh, uh, during the winter. And, I, and, and even when I was in school, high school playing basketball uh, or stuff during the winter, I w- we still had, uh, there were still places you could play baseball on the weekends, and I, and I did. Uh, I played everything. I, uh, I just, I was bl- blessed to be pretty good at most any sport I tried, and, uh, and I played them all just like kids. It was, you know, it was, it was one way of staying out of trouble, I guess. I right. never thought of it like that, but we just played all the time, and I would, uh, and I love, but I love baseball, and I would go out and hit my bat against the telephone poles out in front of the house. I, I liked the sound it made. It made a lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> you hit it. But yeah, we used to play ball all the time, and uh, you know, when I was when I was a kid, there was no baseball on the West Coast. Uh, they, because the, the, that's when. You know, I played for the Dodgers after '74. Right, right. Uh, and uh, in '74, I mean, and but it was really interesting because I had to approve the trade, and uh, I didn't like the Dodgers. I hated them. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, we uh, when I was a kid, I, there were three boys uh, in my family, and, I, and my, then my sister came along when I was 15 years old. Uh, she's the one that lives in Overland Park. Oh, okay, okay. Well, uh, we lived in a 26-foot trailer in a place called the Delamo Trailer Park. And, uh, and so our, you know, a trailer that size gets kind of crowded and with, with the two adults and then us boys. And I had two brothers. Uh, and so 
and you could watch uh, either the Hollywood Stars or the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League. Hmm. And that was our life, man. We'd turn the TV around and sit in the corner of the trailer, and we'd watch baseball every night. And then the Dodgers came to town, and there was no more baseball. They wouldn't televise anything. <laughs> you know, my old man didn't have any money, so there was no way that we could he could drive us up to the Coliseum and then eventually to the uh, to Chavez Ravine and watch the Dodgers or watch some major league game. So when the Dodgers came to town, my social life was crushed. <laughs> I hated them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. And it was story. really funny because when. When we when we got the call, they wanted to buy my contract. Uh, I uh, Carol and I talked about it. And said I don't know. I don't know if I want to go to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's a that's a great. Story. But, they, but they were headed for the World Series, and so I said, No, I think I do want to go to the World Series. <laughs> so. Well, you went to high school there at Jordan High School in Long Beach, and then you went to Pepperdine. Like you said, you played a lot of sports. You played basketball also. At Pepperdine, you'd be the first ever MLB player from Pepperdine to play in the big leagues later on. But let's talk about Pepperdine first. So you mostly caught, you were an All-American in 1963 in baseball. You hit over 400 in 63 and 64. So your favorite memories at Pepperdine, when you look back, what are they? Oh, uh, well, first, my wife. <laughs> yeah, number one, you got to say that. I got, uh, well, no, yeah, well, my, getting my, meeting my wife and in the gym. She was an athlete, and oh. that's where I met her. She she was her high school athlete of the year, and uh, so we met in the gym. But uh, I suppose uh, I have you know I've been still involved with Pepperdine. I've I've served on their board of, of regents since uh, 1986, and so I've been very much involved with them. Uh, uh, you know I've, I've been involved with uh, Christian higher education for a long time, and and I and that was actually the reason I went to Pepperdine because I had scholarships at the time I was actually a pretty good basketball player and I had scholarships to go to Berkeley uh, really? who had just won the NCAA the previous year and uh, and uh, uh, but I didn't want to, I wanted to go someplace where I could study uh, both biology uh, because so I go to med school and religion and so Pepperdine offered me that chance but probably my biggest uh, if I think back about my sentimental things other than my wife, uh, probably the baseball team that I played on in 1963, uh, we went to the uh, regional championships and then uh, got voted out of the, we were ranked in the top 10, uh, and uh, it was probably the most amazing team I played on uh, ever. Uh, we had 13 players. We had one player at every position, and we had one utility infielder, one utility outfielder, and three pitchers. That's it. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And there was there's a there's a backstory to that, but it takes too long to go into it. But but and it was our coach's first year, and three of those guys went on and played some professional baseball, uh, and we just uh, it was an amazing bunch of guys, and we, we actually got together for a 50th reunion. Uh, about a year ago. Oh, cool. And uh, it was a lot of fun. All of us, everybody was still alive except for two guys. We lost one fella in uh, Vietnam. Oh. Uh, uh, a guy named Ron Beeman was killed in Vietnam in in 68. He, uh, he was a captain in the Army. And then uh, we lost one fella in 2002. Other than that, 
we're still all together. You know, and Pepperdine has won the national championship, uh, NCAA championship, in 1992. But the the best earned run average and uh, the strikeout ratio, uh, uh, all of that still belongs to uh, that club from 1963. It was a it was a just so much fun, and that's probably my best uh, sentimental memory. And I got the, the picture of all those old guys. I can't believe how they all got so old when we got together. <laughs> right. But I, I was probably the only one that didn't change. <laughs> right, of course. You look the exact same. Still 21, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I tell everybody to, that uh, don't underestimate uh, old, short, fat guys. Old, short, <laughs> fat, bald guys. And I, I used to say that to kids, you know, when we'd be talking about sports or something. And I'd tell them not to underestimate an old short fat bull guy and my i was with somebody one time and i said that and my wife said to me oh gail you're not too short <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there you go one out of three well, ain't bad trying to emphasize you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah two out of three ain't bad right so meatloaf said uh well, for a ball player two out of three is a great night yeah 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 now, a couple of honors, you talking about those days, I'm sure both of these were important to you, but you eventually got into the West Coast Conference Hall of Honor, but I'm guessing maybe the more exciting honor to you was the fact that you were the first person in your family to get that, that college degree. What did that mean to you, and what does that mean to you? Oh, it was, it was great. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but you're right, actually, and I, that, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's kind of neat. You know, it's great to be honored. It was great to be win a lot of things, but uh, in terms of satisfaction in life and stuff, uh, being able to go to school uh, was was just a, a drive that I had uh, from the time I was about in junior high school. Actually, it was pragmatic, uh, David. I, uh, I, my dad drove a truck, and I used to be on the, the, the short end of, of a bunch of the loads. We, he drove a furniture truck, and I was always carrying furniture on one end of it. So I, And then I decided I didn't want to do that, so I went out and got a job in a nursery. When I was, This is when I was in high school. And after a week and a half of working in the nursery, I decided there ain't no way I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I had decided at, that I was going to go to school and do something different. Uh, than driving a truck or working in a nursery and that kind of stuff. And so being able to go to school opened up the whole world for me. And so I, that was just a big deal. And then, of course, it's, it made, it's made it possible the same things for my kids. Uh, my brother went, was able to go on and do the same kind of thing, one of my brothers. So, you know, it was, it was an incredible event and big deal for me. Yeah, well, that's that's awesome. Well, now, after Pepperdine, I'm, I'm kind of confused. So, from how I understand it, you played for the Edmonton Oilers in the Western Canadian Baseball League, and you got discovered by the White Sox. Is that how it works? So, what exactly is the Western Canadian Baseball League, and how did you end up there and, and get discovered? It was, uh, uh, that that was actually a, a big deal for my in my professional career, because it amounted to uh, a rookie league. It was a semi-pro league. They paid us... Uh, a lot of money. I went up there, and I was the only guy that actually had his wife with him. Uh, we got paid twenty-five dollars a week. Hmm. And see how Kane would if he played for twenty-five a week. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we paid for we played uh, for twenty-five a week, 
and uh, we played seventy ball games in seventy days, and uh, and there was there were scouts around there, but I had been scouted and, and and out of high school, you know, there were clubs that wanted to sign me, uh, but I decided I wanted to go to school, and and uh, and not just to play baseball, but I wanted to go to school first and then play baseball, and so. When I went to Canada, uh, we played 70 ball games in 70 days, and it was uh, former professional players. Well, they were professional players. Some, there were, some of them were getting paid, and then there were college players. And so after uh, after the completing that year, uh, when that season was over, the White Sox offered me a contract. And uh, and so then I went to Florida and started playing uh, with the White Sox organization in the minor leagues. Uh, with them, and then of course they called me to the big leagues in '68. Yeah, well, you, uh, staying with that. So you, your first summer in pro ball was really good. Florida State League in '65. You played at Sarasota, and you were an all-star catcher. You hit .272. What, what was that first summer? You know, completely away from home, like. Well, it wasn't. Uh, you know, I was married, and so Carol and I had had been uh, we had been married over a, a couple, like a year and a half or so at that point, and so and we had lived in Canada, played up there. So it wasn't, it was as long as home has always now been where Carol was. So it wasn't so bad that like I was away from home, but it, but I'll tell you what, it was, it was an adjustment learning to play in humidity. I had never lived in a humid place and, and Canada wasn't that way and California wasn't that way. And so, uh, so when I, when we went to Florida, that was, that was a tough adjustment, uh, but I actually did quite well. Uh, but that was where I found out about one of the realisms of, of, of professional baseball. Because I was hitting about 325, leading the league in hitting when we went uh, getting ready to enter the month of August. Hmm. And Rod Carew was hitting 300. He was the closest one to me. Uh, we played, uh, we had a little bit of rain in Florida during the summer, you know? Mm, of course. And so uh, we played. We played a series of uh, 19 games or 19 days, and it, during that time we we had one week where I I caught 13 games in one week. We had six double hitters in a week. My batting average went from 325 to uh, to uh, 270, uh, and I lost 25 pounds oh my gosh. during that 19 days. I remember I had a streak where I was like 0 for 30. I was so stinking tired. <laughs> and uh, But the manager kept putting me out there, and which I'm glad he did, you know, because uh, that's the way you do it, and that's professional ball. And, that, and certainly that was the way it was because there's always somebody wanting to take your place. So, oh, yeah. And so I, I, got, I, I learned, though, it is really hard to take care of yourself. You know, and that was one of the big deals, and, you know, and, but it was a great time. There was uh, in Florida. We made a lot of friends, and of course, ended up going back to Florida and to the west coast of Florida uh, for pretty much the rest of my uh, professional career. Because we trained there in Sarasota with the White Sox, and then when I was with the Royals, we were in Fort Myers. Well, now you uh, ended up was, you ended up living at a, a, later on in your life at a place you played a couple years later. So '66 or '66, you played for Lodi, where I believe you lived later, but you were there. In the California yeah. League, you hit 358 that year. You had 12 home runs. The next year, 67th Lynchburg in the Carolina League, 20 home runs. 
and 312. So what was it like in Lodi, by the way? I'm assuming there's no pro baseball there anymore, even semi-pro, I don't think. Is there? I don't think they're playing in Lodi now. Yeah, we used to, of course, I, my wife grew up in Stockton, and uh, that was one of, my pro- one of my problems in life has always been uh, I can get big. Right. I think I said earlier, short, fat guys, yeah. you know, ball guys. Well, uh, I got up to, uh, I had, if you'll notice carefully, there were no triples that year in 66. <laughs> uh, I, if I couldn't walk past second, I didn't try. <laughs> but but uh, uh, we lived at home at, at my folk, at Carolyn's, my wife's uh, parents' home that year in Stockton. It was six miles from the ballpark. Oh, cool. So it was, it was kind of like playing at home. Another guy in that league named Don Anderson, who was uh, uh, getting about, he had around 360 or so that year. And we were both played on the same high school. Hey, I, I got to tell you something before, as soon as you're talking about those things. Uh, the Royals, when I played there, I grew up in Long Beach. You know, I grew up in North Long Beach. You know, there, there, here's some Royal names for you. Uh, Jim Rooker. Yes. And Paul Shaw. Yep. We, and then I. We all played on the Royals at the same time. But we all played on the same Legion team in high school. Oh, no way. That's cool. See? Yeah, okay. then we all grew up. There were 15 guys when I played uh, uh, with the Royals who had grown up in California. Because uh, there were a lot of ballplayers came from California when I played. And three of us three of us had grown up within uh, two miles of each other. We all, you know, we all knew each other, grew up together, and all that. And then That's we ended up cool. playing together in Kansas City. Well, I knew, actually, I talked to Rooker about a couple months ago. I featured him, and then also I know Shaw's still around here doing, what, some chiropractic, maybe? And then also I, uh, Bob Lemon, we'll talk about him later, but I know he's from Long Beach, too, isn't he? Yeah, or he what, was. Wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Bob was, Bob was uh, I thought, was he was the, the manager that I played for in my career that I thought was the best manager that I played for. Well, we'll get to him. But so, 1968, you have a whirlwind of a year. You're at Double A Evansville. You're at Triple A Hawaii and the big leagues. And before we talk about Chicago, though, um, I've read you have quite the cool story how you found out you were going to the big leagues. So you were at a movie theater in Montgomery, Alabama, and you got tapped on the shoulder or something. Tell that story. Well, yeah, I, uh, it's too. It gets a bit involved here, but I, I had quit. Base, I had quit because Caroline had supported us. Oh no way! A lot of people don't. You know, when I played in the minor leagues, you didn't really make any money. Uh, in my first year, I made $2,100 in, uh, when I was with the White Sox. I made $25 a week when I was playing in Canada. Then I made $2,100 with the White Sox in 65. Then I made $2,600. Then I made $3,000 in the following year. That's not quite enough to live on uh, then or now, you know. And so Caroline was teaching school and supporting us. Uh, well, uh, she... Uh, uh, in '67, uh, she was going to have a baby. She was going to have her first daughter after we had been married about three and a half years. So we finally decided to have a family, and she couldn't teach anymore. And the White Sox and I, uh, when I, I asked them about winter ball and different things, and and it became apparent at that point when I talked to them that it, they didn't appear to have a plan for me. So I quit and went to work at Pepperdine. So when I came back in '68. I, I came back just to fill out a roster during the summer, and, and the, my conversation with the White Sox was that I was going to, at the end of August, I was heading back to Los Angeles because uh, I'd given up on the idea of playing in the major leagues. Really? But I was playing baseball 
so I would be a better coach and a better, because I was coaching at Pepperdine at that point. And so uh, we went to, uh, they sent me to play in the AA league, and I thought I was a roster player, uh, you know, filling out a roster uh, and helping other players develop. And so I was, I went to a movie and uh, on the, in an afternoon in Montgomery, and I was sitting there and, and in, I don't know, I was engrossed in the movie as it was, you know, in the afternoon and I was by myself and it was right next to the hotel. And, and so I was sitting there and all of a sudden I get tapped on the shoulder and the manager says, said, Gail, Gail, I got to talk to you. And I, man, I thought, I thought something had happened to my wife or my kid. I came out of there and I, I thought I was scared. I thought something had happened to them because I was on a road trip and Nobody would come and tap you on the shoulder in the theater unless it was something bad. <laughs> so I came outside, and Waziak told me I was going to Chicago. I was about ready to kill him. <laughs> 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 it was, yeah, but I was happy to go. <laughs> wow, so that was a complete surprise to you, like a shock then. Oh, yeah, I had, I, I had not planned. I mean, I had really given up on uh, – I, was, I, was, I mean, Pepperdine, Pepperdine was, paid me, was paying me more to teach school and coach. Uh, and they were going to pay me more than I'd made with the White Sox in three years. Oh my gosh! What in the minor league? So, so I was, uh, you know, and I, I wasn't. I mean, I love baseball. I just love the game. But, uh, but I was, you know, I, I have to be realistic. My wife and my kids had to eat, and yeah. so there was no way I was going to be able to do it. Well, things all changed. Yeah. After Waziak tapped me on the shoulder. Can you remember what movie you were watching that day, and, and did you ever finish the movie? <laughs> no, my memory is pretty good, Dave, but it's not that good. <laughs> no, you can't remember. That would be that'd be cool though if you could remember what it was. You know, I should get a refund from those guys. I never saw the end of it. <laughs> well, maybe if you go back to that week and see what's in the box office that week, you can conjure up the memories again. I'll send you a link. Maybe we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was it was there. I was sitting in that movie theater. I was on the I was right on the edge of the of the aisle. I remember. On the left side, I remember that all that part. But. <laughs> That's great. Well, so you went 0 for 1 in your big league debut, June 29th of 68 at Detroit, but then your first big league hit was in your first big league start on the 4th of July at Baltimore. You went 2 for 5, and you got your first, you know, first hit off a of future Royal Wally Bunker. What do you remember about that day? Oh, I remember all of it. But uh, the, what I remember, I'll tell you what's even better, though, is my first at bat against, the Royal, um, against Detroit. And that was against Denny McLean. Oh, I didn't know that. When he won, uh, and he won the uh, thirty-one, and uh, uh, I so they sent me up. Uh, 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 Eddie Stanky sent me up to pinch hit, and I, I remember the sequence quite well. He he threw me a fastball, and I ripped it down the line foul. Uh, first first pitch down the line foul, and then uh, he threw me a slider and I I just missed it. He hung it out over the plate and I fouled it straight back. Then he threw me his curveball. Denny McLean had had absolute control command over four pitches. Uh, he was he was really, really a good a good pitcher. He had great stuff. He threw me a curveball. I hit it out of the ballpark and it hit the facing in Detroit uh, in the upper deck uh, one foot foul. Oh wow! And then the next pitch, there was I I, I I was really feeling pretty good. I said I got this guy. He can't. He 
there's no way he can throw the ball by me. I already, I've seen his fastball, I've seen his stuff, and so I got him, you know. And the next pitch he threw was the fastest changeup I've ever seen. <laughs> and it went, it just kept coming, and I watched it cross the plate on the outside part of the plate, and I walked back for a strike three. <laughs> and you thought, welcome to the big leagues, right? Yeah, but I'll tell you what. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, you know, one of the things about baseball is that, that a lot of the people don't understand. Uh, it's just a lot of fun to be around really neat guys. There are some jerks, but most of the guys in the game that I ran into over the years are just fun to be around. And when I came back to the uh, – I came back, I was I thought the world was over. I remember I struck out. I couldn't – because I, I didn't strike out much. Yeah. I think you probably found that out. Oh, but, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were, uh, and I used, if I swung at the ball, or and I had a really good idea of the strike zone, and because when I was with the White Sox one year, Eddie, uh, I mean, I, uh, Louis Aparicio, Walt Williams, and I were one, two, and three in the league and hardest to strike out. Huh. And and uh, I came walking back. I remember I was dragging my bat. I just, I was shaking my head. I can't believe I did that. And, and I was. I could just see that I'm on my, I'm on my way back to the minor leagues. <laughs> <laughs> After what a bat! <laughs> oh yeah, you know you come back, you're just all depressed. <laughs> so I'm walking back, and uh, 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 TD Tommy Davis, uh, who had been with the Dodgers, was with us that year in Kent, in Chicago. I I came back. He walked up on the field out of the dugout, and. Got, started talking to me and talked to me all the way down into the dugout and was telling me that I'm, I've got a great swing, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to do all right, don't worry about it. And then when I sat down, uh, I sat down and he, and he said, he kept talking a little bit and he walked off and then a guy named Daddy Leon Wagner, huh. Daddy Wags, uh, Daddy Wags came up and sat down next to me and for the next five minutes talked to me and told me the same thing. I still remember that. That was a big deal because uh, those guys uh, uh, had great confidence, and they were great confidence builders, and they were great teammates. And and so I still remember that how I felt, and then how I felt after they talked to me. That's great. Well, now. So you're in the middle of the dead ball era then, 69. So the next year then you make the opening day roster as the, as the primary first baseman. I mean, that had to have been cloud nine, right, in 69? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was fun. When I, you asked me about Wally. Uh, I, I remember Wally threw me a night in Wally Bunker. Uh, that was like the 4th of July in, uh, in Baltimore. Yep. And uh, Eddie Stanky coached third base that day. Our, our manager coached third to try to shake the team up. And Wally, uh, Wally threw me a fastball, and it was there was no cheap uh, hit. I mean, it just ripped a line drive uh, through first base and uh, passed Boog Powell into uh, right field. Uh, so and that was, and then of course Wally later on was with us in Kansas City. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. I hit him once with a ball, <laughs> put him out for three weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, see, this is why I love talking to you guys. Cause I, you, you never get these stories anywhere else. So, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I used to hit the ball back up the middle a lot, and I hit it pretty hard up the middle. And so I hit I hit quite a few pitchers. Hmm. Uh, actually, 
one of my high, you know, when you talk about highlights or things that you like to remember, yeah. or that, that you find pride in, I remember Phil Necro was, you know, was uh, having, he, Phil was a really pretty good pitcher. He was mostly in the National League, but he came over and pitched for Cleveland. We played him in Kansas City in 73, one hot, humid day, and he was all greasy. You know, he threw all these grease balls all the time. <laughs> and and uh, we played him, uh, and it was a real humid day. He was sweating like a pig out there, you know. And he threw me a pitch down and away, and I just crushed it right back at him and hit it right back at him. And he had this big blue glove on, and he got the glove up right beside his ear, and the ball tore the webbing out of his glove <laughs> and went right through his glove, tore the webbing out. No way. And it tore the webbing right out of his glove and rolled down behind uh, the pitcher's mound, and I ran down to first, and he had to go get a different glove. <laughs> the, the glove was probably tore apart because it was full of grease. <laughs> it was probably rotten from all the grease he had in it. Yeah, I've never but, seen that happen before. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, he threw a lot of these grease balls. You know, one of the worst things rule makes did to us was uh, they they fixed it. Guys couldn't go to their mouth. Uh, they used to try, guys used to try to throw spitters. You know? yeah. Trouble with spitters, they don't work very well. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But almost any nin can poop. If you put grease on the ball, you can make it do something. Yeah. And so they started using grease, and balls started dropping out of the the bottom, dropped out of them. <laughs> well. So, okay, before we talk about leaving Chicago, what are your favorite memories of Chicago those three years? You were there back in 1972. What are your favorite memories of playing for the White Sox? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I just love I love baseball, the whole thing I was there. I mean, I uh, there, there were a lot of, a lot of just, a lot of memories. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I remember one thing I did learn about baseball. I remember one good thing was a, a lesson I learned playing against Baltimore. Uh, Baltimore was, uh, you know, they were Baltimore and Oakland were clubs that were really good when I, when we were playing. And, uh, uh, so, uh, there was, we, Dave McNally was the best pitcher in the league one year and, and we were playing them in our ballpark, and and uh, Dave was just mowing us down. I mean, there was, you know, he didn't uh, he didn't blow you away. He just was a great pitcher, and uh, and so the score was eight to nothing going into the eighth inning, and uh, he was. I mean, we had like two or three hits, and you know, it was nothing. Uh, we got to the eighth inning. And then uh, in the eighth inning, I hit twice in the eighth inning. We scored eight runs. I I hit a, a triple and a single, and off of I hit a triple off of him, and then a, and a single, and we 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 tied the game up, and then we eventually won the game. And I remember thinking about that a lot. Here was the best pitcher in baseball, and every, there's no way that he's going to lose eight runs. Eight runs was enough for him to win probably three ball games. You know, and and yet here was uh, you think he's going to walk away with a win, and we just came back out of nowhere, and we weren't a particularly good team that year, uh, but that's the way it is in life, you know. Just uh, never stop hustling, never stop going. Yeah. Uh, because good things can happen if you, you know you make your breaks. You just keep working at it, and and people come back just like the Royals did this year in some games. They came back here in the series, you know, and in, in this playoffs time. 
uh, probably the biggest one of the biggest memories I had though was, and I just thought of that was I was we were at uh, Yankee Stadium playing against the Yankees when they had the official retirement for Mickey Mantle. Oh, cool! And there was uh, it was it was a fantastic day. There was sixty six thousand people there that day. The stadium was full, and uh, it was a very impressive day. That's cool. That's cool. Well, well it really was. Now, at the end of 1970, the White Sox dealt you and John Matthias to the Royals for Pat Kelly and then uh, Don O'Reilly. Tragic story with him, obviously, later on. But So what do you remember about the moment you were traded to the Royals? Where were you at, and, and what were your thoughts on that? Well, like a lot of people, uh, I was driving in the car, and I heard about it. <laughs> oh, on the radio? Wow. Yeah, so, so uh, you know... Uh, I was in. I was driving home and uh, from somewhere, uh, and I heard uh, that I'd been traded. So, uh, the uh, uh, it you know I I didn't I I didn't particularly want to leave Chicago. We were just getting used to the place, and uh, and I had started graduate school. I was I started working on my PhD there, and so and that actually was a decision that uh, we made as a family that because I had already started a Ph.D. program in California at UCLA, and then we ended up being moved to Chicago. And then so we had this vision of, of by the time I finished playing baseball, I had started graduate programs all over the country. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, so we just decided that we, Carol and I decided we would live in Chicago, and I worked it out with the university so that when I went to, went to uh, Kansas City, and the years I was in Kansas City, I was able to continue my uh, uh, my my PhD studies, and uh, so it, it all worked out. It's just you know you have to, like I said, you have you hustle, you make your breaks, and and you know don't don't give up on your goals. Uh, you know if you get stopped one time or two times or three times, just keep looking for ways to get it done. Uh, and so we did that, and uh, and of course. Uh, uh, when uh, we were when we were traded, that meant changes for us, you know, because we'd have to take our kids and and all and live in a different place. And so it worked out pretty well, though, because I was able when we went to Kansas City, is that we lived in Paul Lindblad's house. Paul had a home there in uh, Overland Park, and he had, he was originally with the the Kansas City Athletics. Oh, okay, okay. And so they were out in Oakland. And so there was a bunch of us that kind of did that in baseball. I mean, Wilbur Wood lived in our house, and other people lived in different houses. And I actually, Carol and I lived in Jim Rooker's house one year huh. in Kansas City. That's cool. Now, you, we mentioned Bob Lemon earlier. We'll talk about him again in a second. But 71, uh, you're with the Royals. You're the everyday first baseman. You had a great on base, 364 that year. Your OPS was uh, leading among the regulars at 794. Now, one good memory of that 71 team was the 13 out of 21 streak you had in June, and you went 20 for 40 during a stretch of that year. Do you remember that hot streak at all? And in that first year in Kansas City, what sticks out? Uh, no, I don't remember the streak. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, you know, it's not that I'm not. I don't like to. Uh, and not proud of things I do and interested in, but. You know, I didn't know that I had the highest batting average. You know, baseball is one crazy sport. Uh, and what other sport does a, can a person have the highest batting average uh, in uh, in the history of of an organization for the month for a month? And so, when I after I left the White Sox, 
in 70, I didn't know that in 70, I or 69 or 70, I'm not sure which year it is now, I hit four-something uh, <laughs> for the whole month, which I hit like 480 or something like that. And that was the highest batting average in the history of the White Sox for a month. So when you tell me I was 13 for 21, I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Uh, but what I did, what I did do when I was playing, I did keep a book though, where I was, I would keep a book on other players that I played against, you know, so I'd know what pitchers did and what other things, and I, I kept things to remind myself of how they pitched me in certain situations and and, and all that. Uh, but no, I didn't, I didn't remember that. <laughs> I. 71. Um, Do you still have that book, by the way, of, of all the old pictures? Oh, I got it somewhere. Oh, uh, you should publish that. That'd be so cool to look at that or, or just, you know, send, put it on the Internet or something. I'd love to read some of that stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a rat pack, you know, and I can't keep all this stuff. Uh, but, uh, no, I, you know, I, uh, I really liked, I mean, but once we were in Kansas City, I loved playing there. Uh, George Toma and the best field – the best field that I ever played baseball on was uh, the, 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 the ballpark on 22nd Street. Really? And it was, and yeah, now, the ballpark itself was an old, old stadium, you know, wasn't modern, anything like that. But Toma was a, those guys were a wizard with uh, grass and, and the infield, and it was just a wonderful place to play. Uh, and, and it was just a lot of fun. Um the uh, trying to think of something in '71. Uh, well, here's a, here's a question: Why you think? What did you like about Bob Lemon so much? You mentioned you thought he was the best you'd played for. What what was it about him? Yeah, let me. I, I'll tell you. Let me. Uh, I, well, that that is the part of the point. As in '71, uh, one of the things about Lemon was uh, that I, you know, I, I mean, plus he had a real dry sense of humor. But, uh, and Bob was just a, a really good baseball person. I mean, he was really a great pitcher uh, when he was with Cleveland. He was with that really great group of guys uh, in Cleveland in the 50s. Uh, and uh, I, I learned from him, uh, I think, something that's helped me. You know, I mean, I, I chair the board of some universities. I work on things. And one of the things that I learned from Bob that I've, I've tried to do when I work with people both in my medical office with my employees uh, or where am I am, uh, I try to let them know uh, what's expected of them. And, and by that I mean uh, Lemon would come up, Lemon came up to me and he said, and I remember this is what he told me in spring training, he just said, he said, Hop, uh, uh, I, I'm really glad to have you here and all that kind of stuff. He says, but you're going to be uh, my pinch hitter, this and utility player. Uh, I want you to be ready. I don't know, never know when I'm going to use you. Uh, you know, he had Bob Oliver hit 30 home runs or something like that the year before, and drove in 100, like 100 runs, and and uh, he said, so I want you to be ready, but you're not going to be an everyday player right now. And uh, I said, okay, and and but he was that way with everyone. Everyone knew what their role was. And and he wasn't ambivalent. He didn't uh, he didn't jerk you around. He was very straightforward and, and, and fair about it. You know, and he and he had a sense of humor that also helped along with his coaches. 
uh, I remember in 71, we got to about the halfway point, and we had Amos Otis and Pontiac and Paul were, uh, Paul Shaw, were all having pretty good years. And, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Paul, Paul had an incredible year. He, like, walked 104 times or something like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, and he had just an amazing year. He had, like, 270-something. And, and so these guys were always on base. And we got to uh, about the halfway point in the season, and uh, Bob had been struggling. Uh, Oliver had been struggling and uh, at, at hitting behind those guys. And so uh, Lemon came up to me. And when we're going into Detroit, I, and I just thought it was another day. We go to the ballpark, and I was just going to go out and do my workout and be ready. And uh, we went. We, I, he walked into the, cl- the old clubhouse in the old uh, stadium there, where uh, where the Tigers played, Tiger Stadium. And he walked up to me and he said, "Pop," he said, "You're my first baseman." He says, "You're going to be my first baseman until you can't do it." And he says, you're going to hit fourth. No way. That's cool. And and he says, I'm putting Bob, in, and, he, and he moved Oliver to right field because he wanted his bat in the lineup. Uh, and so he, he put me in. And the first inning, the bases were loaded when I came to bat, and I hit a triple and drove in three runs. <laughs> and uh, and that was and, – and, and that that second half of the year, I drove in about 40, 40 runs or 45 runs in the second half of the year. It was probably the best uh, in the States. I, it was the best sequence or from my perspective or of, you know, of, of performance that I did. I hit, you know, like eight home runs or something like that in the second half of the season and, and uh, when I was playing. Uh, and then the next year, uh, they traded for John, yeah. uh, for John Mayberry. And so then I went back onto the bench. Uh, but, uh, but that was that's what I mean about Bob Lemon. He would tell you what you're going to do, and as long as you did what you were supposed to do, everything was fine. I mean, he and he made, and I think that's actually a good way of doing business and and handle and helping employees and people I work with. Try to let them know what's expected of them, and then give them the opportunity to do it. Don't second guess them all the time, and don't try to you know. I mean, if you hire somebody to do a job, then at least give them a chance to do the job. And that's the way Bob was. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. So 1972, you mentioned that your second year there. You only got 71 at-bats in 53 games. Um, you had 295 the year before that. And you, you like you mentioned, John Mayberry. And there wasn't yet the DH until that following season in 73. So I mean, was, was that a frustrating year for you, or did you just understand your role and accept it? Well, it's always frustrating. I under, even if you understand your role, it can be frustrating <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you know. I mean, I, I if you got a, if you're a ball player and you don't want to play, you're not a ball player. You know. Now, I mean, you can now you can be a ball player and and uh, uh, cause problems by you know and 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 I hopefully didn't do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I, I, I saw guys who had a hard time uh, accepting uh, those kinds of changes. There are only nine guys going to play at a time. And and quite often, you know, you're sitting there knowing that you can do better than the guy out in the field, even if you can or can't. Right. But the, the point is only only nine guys play. And, 
and uh, there was they saw the Royals saw their future with John. I mean, he was young and he could hit the ball hard. You know, he had a lot of things going for him. And so, no, I didn't. I mean, I didn't want to sit on the bench, but uh, that was what that was what fell to me. Uh, I do remember. Let's see, it was in '72. Uh, they were going to, let's see, no, it was in 71, right? Uh, was, they were going to build a new stadium yep. in Kansas City. The They were going to build a K. Yep. Uh, one thing that was kind of funny uh, was at the end of 71, I think it was, they were going to build a new stadium, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because we played against the Angels the last, I think it was the Angels, the last part of the, the last game, series of the season. And there was a guy named Marty Patton pitching for him, and I played that night, and I hit a home run, uh, a home run like in the seventh inning or something like that, uh, into right field on the old stadium. And this person shows up uh, in the locker room and says, Gail, they need your bat. And I said, why? What do you mean? They, they wanted my bat. And so I said, okay, well, what for? They said, well, it's for Cooperstown. Because they they they're going to keep it as the bat that was used to hit the last home run in uh, I think it was Memorial Stadium. Yep, municipal. Yep. And and so uh, uh, I said, well, okay, that's pretty cool. Probably the only way I'll ever get in uh, the <laughs> Hall of Fame. <laughs> so so uh, I I gave him my bat, and then uh, when sp- spring training started in '72, they gave me my bat back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why did that get delayed? By the way, I don't know. There was something. To, there was something going on. They didn't. They couldn't finish it. There was. I don't know. If it was financing. I don't know. If it was permitting or what it was. You know that that those kind of decisions were above my pay grade. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I was. Uh, uh, but they didn't. You know, they didn't do it. And then we. And then we opened the season there in '73. Yeah. What was it like? How nice was that park in '73? Oh, it was a beautiful park. I, I did. I didn't like the the turf, uh, you know, but that was what they put in. And uh, but the opening game was the pits, man. We opened. Uh, that was there was a baseball strike that year. And uh, when the baseball strike was over, uh, we lost the first three games uh, to to the strike. I mean, we didn't play them. They were supposed to be played in Texas, and then we came home. And we opened it in our ballpark, and it was just freezing rain. And they they rolled the tarp back off the field, and uh, it was so cold, uh, it was frozen. The, <laughs> and there was ice. There was ice over that came off with the tarp, so we got over there by first base. Uh, that whole area over in there was slick with ice. <laughs> I, that's what I remember about the first night. <laughs> but... But it was a beautiful ballpark, and uh, and it still is. I mean, it's it's fundamentally the same, you know, same kind of same park, and it's just, it's just it's been very reno- I mean, it's obviously been renovated, but it was it was a really nice ballpark, uh, big big ballpark. Uh, but uh, it was I, I didn't particularly I don't particularly like playing on AstroTurf. Yeah, thankfully it's gone now. <laughs> yeah, right. I like grass. Well, so talking about Jack McKeon, then you played for him in '73. I found a, a cool quote that he said about you. 
He said before 73, he said, quote, I feel we have one of the best pinch hitters in the game in Gail Hopkins. He makes good contact and is a good hitter against left handed pitching. So how'd you like playing for Jack McKeon? Jack was fine. It was pretty much the same way. Uh, you know, by then, John was uh, was uh, the uh, was the first baseman. And so my role really didn't change much uh, after they, uh, uh, you know, after 72 when John came. So I was doing fundamentally the same thing uh, with, with the Royals. Uh, of course, and then the DH came along, uh, and I was getting the DH some. Uh, the, uh, that was Jack's rookie year. Uh, as as a manager, he was that was his first year to manage in the big leagues. That's cool. That's cool. Well, now, May fifteenth of that year, something memorable happened. Nolan Ryan threw his first career no hitter uh, that yeah. year in Casey. Now I've read that his biography, autobiography, sorry, throwing heat. He says that in the eighth inning, you hit a blooper that was caught by the shortstop, and that's the closest he ever came to losing any of his no hitters. T- talk about that at bat in that night. Oh, I remember it pretty well. I, I might describe it differently than, than that, but actually, <laughs> uh, the uh, I, I never had a lot of trouble uh, uh, hitting against Nolan. Uh, he, I mean, he was great. I, I, I mean, he's he is one of the greatest pitchers all time. Uh, but you know, uh, I could see the ball pretty well off of him. And with Nolan, as it is, if you watched even the game last night. Uh, uh, Baumgartner uh, is successful because he throws uh, he throws the ball he moves it around but he also gets guys out uh, his strikeout pitch like with Kane and some of the guys was to throw fastballs up right and and uh, you know the fastball up looks so as it comes up there if it's you know it looks so hittable well a fastball is coming up there at 87 miles an hour is pretty hittable but when they're when you're getting it up there at in the ni- upper night mid 90s or so, and especially if you throw it inside, that's the toughest pitch in baseball to hit. You got to bring your bat the farthest. It looks so good. You got to get on top of the ball and all those things, and it just doesn't happen. And and so Nolan would Nolan would strike guys out with his high fastballs all the time. And so uh, I just disciplined myself that if if the ball was going to be if I thought it was waist high or above, I wouldn't make an I wouldn't offer. Uh, and uh, uh, and so, uh, in all the times I faced him, he only punched me out one time, uh, and that was again a situational. And that was another situation uh, out in California. Uh, but he uh, uh, that night anyway, he was throwing the ball really well, uh, and. Uh, I came to bat. Uh, Bob sent me, or Jack sent me up uh, to hit in the, like the eighth inning, and uh, they had a rookie first, a rookie shortstop that was had joined them, a guy named Rudy Mioli. And when I came to bat against against, uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly pull the ball. I hit the ball around the ballpark, and so I come to bat and. Uh, Rudy Mioli was playing around towards second base from short, as a shortstop. It was crazy. Huh. There was, he was leaving this big hole over at uh, short. Uh, but he had, he had moved over, and he was moved over toward uh, second when I'm hitting as a left 
much off the label, a little off the label into center field. It was a little looping line drive. And Mioli uh, makes this running catch behind second base. It's out. If you draw a line straight to center uh, over second base, that's where it was. And Mioli made just a fantastic catch. And so uh, I, he was just out of position. <laughs> huh. but, but it worked. <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and then uh, when Nolan got the ball back after they tossed it around, he, 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 walked, he must have walked around the mound, circled around the mound like eight times. <laughs> and he stopped at the back of, and he did, he stopped at the back of the mound and then he walked up onto the mound and he just blew us away for the next, uh, next five outs. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was just a great pitcher, a great competitor. Cool. I remember it quite well. Cool story. Now, a couple the other. Reason, the only reason it wasn't a hit is because Mioli was out of position. <laughs> yeah, the baseball gods wanted him to throw that no hitter that night. I guess, right? Uh, somebody did. I didn't, but somebody <laughs> did. Now, a couple other big things that year: June second, you had three hits and four bats against Cleveland, and you were hitting three sixty six at that time. You also had a you had two extra inning game-winning hits in 1973 as well. And then one thing I wanted to ask you about, there was a young man named George Brett that played in 13 games in 73. Do you remember much about George, his first like you know month in the big leagues? Sure, I know George. Uh, I mean, uh, I you know, I grew up in uh, I grew up in, you know, in Southern California and and in 61, I think it was 61 his brother Kimmer uh, was you know a left-hand pitcher. He grew up in El Segundo, and uh, that's where George came. They all came from there. And and my my college roommate, the guy I played basketball with when I went off to Pepperdine to play, uh, was from El Segundo. So they're all all of us were kind of friends. So uh, now George was younger, and uh, and uh, I he he came up uh, uh, and joined us uh, and. You could just see. I mean, he just—he had all the tools. You know, he ran as uh, uh, for a white guy. He could run. Right. And he had—he had a great arm and great defense, and he could hit the ball. I mean, he just had—he uh, had all the baseball tools, and and he had the kind of the confidence that went along with with being a really good player. Uh, I mean, and, you know, and so. Uh, I remember George very well, and it, 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 he was a—you could see that he was a sure bet to play. Uh, I remember one of the things that I, I thought was—I thought was just really idiotic uh, was in, in spring training in uh, in '74, uh, I think it was. Uh, they did, Jack had and some of them, uh, McKeon and them, had gotten together, and they decided to see if George could be a catcher. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. No, I've never heard that. They had him. They had him uh, uh, catching some, and in, in, uh, they were going to make him. And they were talking about. It. I talked to him about it, and they said they were talking about making him a catcher. That he'd be an all-star catcher, and 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 then that he could play. You know, instead of being third, they would play. He could catch, and they Paul Shaw or someone else at third or something like that. <laughs> I thought it was the most idiotic thing in the world. Here you got a guy that's going to who could play probably for 15 years. At, at just the highest levels of baseball, and you're going to make him a catcher, and, and so he can't run and get hurt and everything else. But, uh, no, Joe, I took great pride in watching George. Uh, his brother, Kimmer, had played for Boston, you know, when I played. So, I mean, I knew those guys. What was his brother like? Did you know his brother very well? 
Well, just you know, playing against him over okay, the years, okay. you know, high school and then then uh, in college. I mean, in uh, in professional, his brother was nice. I mean, good guy. He, he was a good ball player. Yeah. Well, now you mentioned studying and, and going to school. So I read in the somewhere I read that you were you, you joked about maybe you weren't joking. Uh, people would be out hanging out and going out in the town, and you'd be studying in libraries. So when you were in Kansas City, were you literally like studying in libraries, or where were your hangout spots when you played here? Well, we. Most of the time when I was in Kansas City, I just I was since we were at home. I, I worked at home. I had a room that in the, the homes where we lived, and I had my materials, my books and materials there, and I would I would just read them there and do my work there. Uh, and I, you know, I put in the time and uh, uh, during the daytime. One of the really neat things about baseball is that you get a lot of time. You know, a lot of people don't you don't think about it, but you know, you you have to be at the ballpark, uh, you know, at three in the afternoon if you're playing at home. Uh, but that means you got the mornings. Now, if you want to stay out all night and drink and stay up and uh, hang out, and you can get up at one o'clock and then go to the ball, eat something, go to the ballpark. Uh, but I don't, you know, we're we're Christians. Uh, I don't, we don't do that lifestyle to start with. And so I would just get up in the morning. And I would work, or I'd go, do, you know, I mean, I didn't work all the time. I'd go have fun with our kids and wife and everything else, but we would uh, uh, we would get up and work in the morning, and I, or I'd, you know, I'd pick my time, and then when I'd go to the ballpark, I mean, I'd, there was, I'd sometimes take a book with me, and I'd read when after batting practice or something like that, uh, and I just had gotten into that habit when I was in the minor leagues, uh, when I'm going... You know, I completed a master's degree when I was in the minor leagues, riding on the buses, and I just I would read, and you just kind of get into that habit. And so, you you get a lot of time in baseball. When you're on the road, you have to be at the ballpark about five. You know, so if you go, the, the visiting team comes out, does their hour or so of batting practice and stuff, and then you play a ball game. So, when we would go to different cities or Boston or different. New York or places I'd go to libraries and places hmm. if I if there was something there I wanted to use or to to obtain. Otherwise, I just work in my rooms. That's cool. That's cool. Now, there's two other random things in the Royals media guide I wanted to ask you about. There, you were a player representative while you were here, I know, but also this is kind of random. I thought it says you were a consultant in Miller, Missouri, at the Mickey Owen Baseball School. What exactly was that all about? Hey, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say I did. I was the player rep with with uh, the Royals, and that was uh, that was fun representing the guys. Uh, there were lots of things that uh, happened that uh, you know that we did that uh, are not for public consumption. Right. <laughs> but it was uh, it was uh, it was a challenging time because baseball and the and the uh, the players and the owners were sort of coming to this new working relationship that subsequently developed and that eventually led to the uh, uh, to the removal of the reserve clause in 1977, you know, uh, when Andy Messerschmitt uh, was involved. So there were a lot of things that went on as being the player rep, and so I was honored uh, by my teammates to do that for them. Um, your question about Miller, Missouri, yeah, where is that, by the way? <laughs> well, it's if you get on, if you go to Springfield yeah. and you go uh, on Old US Forty Four, uh, uh, it's 
it's a, about 25 miles or so. Uh, it used to be about 25 miles southwest of uh, of uh, Springfield. Okay. And when I was there, when we were there, there was only a, there was one of those blinking lights at the crossroad in town. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, Springfield is in Greene County. Okay, Greene County, Missouri. And uh, the sheriff of the, uh, there was a baseball player named Mickey Owen who had a storied career, and it's a very too long, but Mickey, had, uh, Mickey played in the big leagues. He, he's one of the guys that uh, got, uh, got a bad rap for being the catcher whose uh, who's th- the third strike went through his legs when he was at the Dodgers and, and uh, went through his legs, and, uh, uh, and the Yankees ended up getting the third strike. Guy got on, uh, I think it was in the ninth inning, ends up scoring Kind the game, the Yankees won the series, hmm. and that was the seventh game, I believe. So, anyways, but he he had some uh, issues he with baseball and the contract, and he ended up playing in in South in in Mexico for a while, got blackballed, but uh, there was some issues that went on. But Mickey came back, and he was a very uh, congenial fella, and uh, he uh, he became the sheriff of Greene County. Uh, and that's where he, you know, he, of course he lived in Greene County, Missouri. He was a Missouri boy. That's cool. And uh, uh, he started a baseball school long time ago, uh, you know, I don't know, in the 50s. He started a baseball school on some property down there in Miller, Missouri. And they had about 600 acres. They had, uh, I think, like, we had like eight baseball diamonds, different sizes with lights, and it was cabins uh, and places for, for dorms. Where students would come during the summer, they'd spend they'd spend a week or two weeks or three weeks or a month, depending how much time that how much money their folks wanted to spend, and they played baseball and they huh. they played baseball. It was like a spring training. You played baseball during the day training, uh, you learned skills, and then it, and then you played ball games. And they had lights on all these fields for these kids, and so kids came from all over the country. Uh, I mean, they came from play. Well, I had kids from other countries that would come to the, the Mickey Owen Baseball School. And uh, they had former major league players with uh, some of them worked there, a guy named Jerry Nyman. Who, yeah. Uh, that Jerry was a teammate of mine in Canada uh, on that Edmonton Oilers, and then we went to the big leagues together with the White Sox. Uh, Jerry ended up working there. We hired him, and he worked there. And so I was involved with them uh, at different capacities. I owned it one time, and... And so it, it was a lot of fun. It was base. It was about base, uh, kids baseball. Yeah. And, and so Mickey Owen was the one who started it. His name was on it. Uh, he also used their T-shirts every couple of years to get reelected. This time <laughs> of the year, you know, you got the elections. Yeah. Well, there was uh, every election cycle. There were probably uh, five thousand kids running around Greene County with Mickey Owen baseball <laughs> school T-shirts on. <laughs> what now? Two other quick questions about that. So, what happened to that baseball school? And and I mean, it, it, were some, were there some well, big big players that came out of there that played in the show later on? Well, they had players. That, they had some kids that signed. I don't know. You know, I just don't. I, I apologize. I don't know the names. I haven't had anything to do with it now in in uh, oh, I don't know twenty five years. Uh, but it it uh, changed names to become uh, the Sports Stars of Tomorrow was uh, was a subsequent name that they took. Uh, but it, it continued to be run by uh, uh, it was it was per- 
purchased and run by different people over the years. The owners changed, uh, but uh, it was it was fundamentally still a, a, a baseball school. It used to be pub- it used to be uh, regularly publicized in the sporting news. Hmm. You know, they had ads in the sporting news, so they get they had a big uh, you know a big following of kids that would come from all over the country to uh, to go to Miller uh, to learn how to play baseball. That's random. Yeah, Jerry Nyman was a pitching coach for the Royals a couple years ago too in the minor league. So that's kind of cool that you. Oh yeah, him. Jerry and I. Jerry and I were good friends, and uh, I mean we were real good friends. In yeah. fact, uh, we talked about Jerry Nyman in our house all the time. <laughs> I remember because Carol and I hadn't been married too long, and and uh, in, in the second year we'd been married, Jerry came over because we were playing together in uh, in Florida, and I was catching and he was pitching, and. Uh, and uh, I remember he came over to the house one night for dinner. Carol fixed some stuff she'd never tried it before, some beef stroganoff. And uh, so Jerry's left-handed, you know. He's sitting there, and he's this beef stroganoff. Carol didn't know. She put a, the ingredients she used. She used the wrong kind of soup or something to make it. So it was kind of runny, you know. And it, and, see, and Jerry sat there, and we started. I started eating right away like I always do, and Carol did. And Jerry's sitting there with his fork moving this stuff around. And so he picks it up and started eating it. He had this real pleasant look on his face, and he says, you know, Carol, it looks like vomit, but it really tastes pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, so I know Jerry Nyman. (laughs) Well, right before 74, the season's about to start, and you ended up going to the Dodgers. And I mean, were you expecting your time in Kansas City to end, and were you sad about that, or what were your thoughts? Oh, no, I was uh, completely caught by surprise. Oh, really? Uh, Because I had had a very good year in 73, pinch hitting. In fact, I was right near the top of the league and, and, and doing what I was supposed to do. And in spring training, I'd had a good spring training. And they called me in, and, and uh, I wasn't very happy about it because uh, they called me in, and, uh, uh, and I got a, a, a release, like, with, with uh, one week to go in spring training. Or at the end, it was the end of spring training, getting ready to break. And, and so... I get a release, and there's no way you're going to sign on with somebody at that point. Uh, you know, and it was not a it was not a nice thing that they did. I didn't like it very much. Uh, so, uh, and but but uh, Jack had decided he wanted to bring Tony Salida up uh, because Tony had played for him in the minor leagues, and so uh, I, we went. I, I went in and uh, and met with him. And Sarah's, I mean, we were in in Fort Myers. And they called, and I got called into the office, and I, I had no idea I was going to do it because I actually had, a, I was having a good spring training, uh, and everything was no indication of it to me. But I also was uh, uh, making, you know, uh, the fans need to hold their horses here because this is really going to, this is going to shock everybody. But I was making twenty eight thousand dollars, <laughs> and uh, that was the fifth or sixth highest paid uh, salary on the club. Oh my gosh. Our team salary was $875,000. Man. That... Uh, so, uh, uh, so anyways, I got, I, I got my release and, uh, so we drove, uh, Paul split our car. Uh, Paul, we used Paul's car and we drove Paul split our car back to Kansas city. Uh, and on the way back, uh, you know, I was, I had, I had decided that I was going to start medical school in, in 74 because I had finished most of my Ph.D. work. 
I was at I was at the stage where I was writing my dissertation, and, and I'm all, I was ready to start writing my dissertation. So uh, when we we drove back and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do, uh, because we had we had also just made a big purchase of a an, of another farm. I owned a couple farms in Chillicothe, uh, and we'd bought a we'd bought a second farm in Chillicothe, which also was bad timing. So I needed to work a little bit that summer, so I called up uh, uh, I called up the Hawaii Islanders. Uh, the, I knew the general manager with the White Sox pretty well, Roland Heeman, and his brother-in-law was the general manager for the for the Islanders. And so I talked to him, and I said, "Well, look, I, I plan on starting medical school in the fall of uh, seventy, maybe in of seventy-four or seventy-five. I, I think I'm going to do it in seventy-five, and I'm going to." stopped playing baseball so they they offered me he said well come on over we'd be happy they paid me seventeen thousand dollars to go to hawaii and play uh for the hawaii islanders i was my contract was owned by the hawaii islanders not by san diego Uh, i was one of two guys aaron hank aaron's brother was also owned by the hawaii islanders and so i went over there then and started playing ball for the islanders and I thought it was, and I, and it, it was my plan that that would be my last year. And then it was right after I was there, about halfway through the season, was when the Dodgers uh, uh, wanted to buy my contract and then bought my contract. Okay. Wait, so, and so after the World Series in '74, uh, the Dodgers uh, wanted to make a roster move, uh, but I had I had decided. We actually put our house up for sale and sold our house at the at, at, in the fall of '74 because we were going to go. I was going to go to school in Mexico. I was going to go to Mexico to go to medical school. Okay. And uh, uh, and so my plan was that '74 would be my last year of baseball at the end of the World Series. And so when the Dodgers asked me for. Uh, to make this roster move, they needed my permission because I was a veteran. I told them, no, I don't want to do that. And they said, but we'll have to release you. And I said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> so I got my, I was able to get my release from the Dodgers. And I thought I was going to move to Mexico to go to medical school at Guadalajara. But uh, as it turned out, uh, it didn't happen that way. Uh, I, I, uh, there was a guy named Frank Ryan. I don't know if you ever ran into him over the years or Mm-mm. heard about him. Mm-mm. He was the professional rep for the Louisville Slugger batting company. And uh, Frank was talking with a fellow who was managing, going to be the first white man to manage in Japan, uh, which was who was a guy named Joe Lutz. And uh, so Lutz uh, called me up. And Ryan said, you should talk to Hopkins. He's a free agent. So uh, Lutz came to Chicago, and in this house that we had sold, we're sitting there in the living room, or kitchen, and he tells me about Japan, and, and he made me an offer. He he, he offered me uh, uh, a $70,000 contract to go to Japan. That was twice, you know, what major league players were making. So if I go to Japan and play for seventy five. And I told him, but I'm going to start medical school, you know, in in uh, September of '75. And he said, "Well, uh, that's okay." 
uh, and they wrote my contract so I could leave to go to medical school from uh, in in September of '75. Once the team was eliminated from championship contention in Japan, huh. and uh, so uh, I went ahead and signed that contract because that was going to make it easy, much easier for us to go, to live and go to medical school. You know that that extra money. So we went to Japan, and the, the short version was Lutz said they had that the Hiroshima Carp had the best players in Japan, but they just hadn't won. And uh, and it turns out that in, at the end of 75, uh, they figured out that they were that good, and they won, and they won the championship. And uh, and I hit a home run that helped win that championship. No way, that's cool. Yeah, well, it, you're, not, you're right. And they made me a financial offer that uh, I simply couldn't turn down it. It made me one of the highest-paid players in baseball. And you played there for a, a couple of years and loved it, right? Oh, yeah. I love it in Japan. And uh, and so uh, they made me a, just a wonderful offer. And so uh, and I and I talked with the medical school in Mexico, and they said I could come the following year. So, you know, I mean, they, they made me an offer that more than doubled my salary uh, that they were paying me, which was just going to make it even that much easier for us to go to med school. Well, when I came back to Chicago for a couple months during the winter, a friend of mine persuaded me to apply to Rush Medical College in Chicago, and I got accepted. Hmm. So we didn't have to go to Mexico, and I, I, was, I started then studying in, at, in 76 uh, at Rush Medical College in Chicago. And so the medical college and then even worked it out where I could continue to play baseball. Uh, uh, for a couple more years, if I wanted to, and which I did, I played through '77. Now, were you, so even if the Royals wouldn't have released you, you still probably were planning on that being your last year at that time. Well, no, if they hadn't have released me, uh, I would have. Uh, I I would have probably tried to stay through '75. What I was faced with was uh, I had, I was at the point with my PhD work. Because I decided I was either going to stay in baseball or I wanted to go to medical school. And I wanted to go to med school. So I was faced with the issue of whether I uh, signed a contract uh, and continued to play ball. And there's a point where, you know, I was in graduate school because you can't, you know, you can't graduate from college, from undergraduate, and then wait 15 years and apply to medical school without having academic work in between. That's not the way it works. So, I mean, I had already talked with medical school people, and for me to realistically go to med school, I was going to have to continue my academic work. And that's why I was working on my Ph.D. Well, I'd gotten to the point where that was going to come to an end, and so I was going to have to make a decision, either stay in baseball or go to med school. And so I thought that the wisest thing was for me to go to med school since that's what I'd been doing. So I would have been faced with, at the end of the 75 season, having, if I was going to go to med school in Mexico, with having to make a decision at the end of the 75 season. But I I had no desire to leave the Royals. I was very happy. Uh, I love Kansas City and playing with the Royals. We we really liked living in Overland Park. Very cool. Now, I wanted to ask you a few more things about a few of your uh, deceased teammates that are no longer with us, just to get kind of some memories about them out there and, you know, remember them and everything. Um, you may not remember lots about all these guys, but do you remember any stories or any cool memories about, uh, we'll start with Jerry May. Jerry? 
Yeah, we all came. We all came to the club. With, some of the things I remember about Jerry, we can't say on the air. <laughs> okay. Uh, but we uh, we all came to the club at the same time, you know. Uh, Jerry came along with Bruce Del Canton and uh, Fred Patek, and that what those guys were just instrumental. You know, we had really good ball clubs when I was there. I mean, you know, for a, for an expansion club, we were a contender. Uh, you know, we were a contender two of the three years I was there, and we got and and we contended with Oakland up until September. Uh, you know they were uh, they were clearly a better ball club, but but Jerry uh, Jerry was one of them. He came over and Jerry was a was always doing something. Uh, I remember uh, uh, one good thing we he used to uh, of course all the guys with all the guys on the club. Jerry Jerry had this. We go on road trips. In those days, you had to wear suits, coat and tie. So Jerry had this pukey coat. He had this obnoxious colored coat that he had and we we went to new york and everybody kind of gave him a bad time about it you know they'd say talk about what a it looked terrible and all this but he and he reveled in it and so so we went to new york and we played uh against the yankees we stayed at this hotel uh right down on times square it was a big fancy hotel and uh uh and so we went to the ballpark and, and we came back, and there, they were having some problems with people breaking into the rooms and stealing things. So uh, we came back, and Jerry's room had been vandalized. And they broke into his, his room. They stole everything. They stole all of his clothes, his toiletries. They took everything out of his room except for that coat. <laughs> <laughs> they left it. That's great. Oh, uh, don't think he got, don't think he got uh, he he uh, he got a lot of writing uh, ribbing from the players on that one. <laughs> now you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Bruce Del Canton. How about him? Oh, Bruce was a great guy. Um, he was a lot of fun. A really a good pitcher. Uh, he he just he was a wonderful teammate. A great guy to be around. I, and I, he was a good pitcher too. He didn't know how to throw the ball straight. His ball moved all over the place. How about uh, Ed uh, Kirkpatrick? Ed was one of the. Ed was a good guy. I uh, he and Judy and the, the boys were. You know, they they lived near us and they were good friends. Uh, that was a real tragedy. Uh, his one of his sons went to school at Pepperdine, played baseball at Pepperdine, and uh, you know, and I and Ed was. Ed, of course, Ed came up as a kind of California kid and. Uh, uh, grew up with the Angel organization, and if I if, as I remember it, and you know we used to, and we of course we spent a lot of time uh, when he wasn't playing or I wasn't playing, we'd sit on the bench because usually it'd be one of us would be called on to pinch hit, and so we would sit there. I remember uh, uh, you were talking about Nolan Ryan. Uh, we were, you know, that year in '73, he also broke a strikeout record. He struck out something like 388 or 389 guys, and we played them like the last game of the season. And, and when he pitched in uh, Anaheim, his last uh, game it was in Anaheim, and uh, uh, he beat us. I think it was one to nothing. Hmm. Uh, and so we were sitting on the end of the bench, and he was just blowing guys away. 
and of course the record you could see it they would say 380 381 382 you know the, the scoreboard would pound this stuff up and I remember sitting there and we were talking about it and there was a guy named Steve Hovley was uh, yeah. was with us the three of us were sitting there talking and watching the game and he said uh, uh, Ed said hey would you strike out just so you you could be the one that goes into the record book <laughs> you know because I think it was 388 was the tied it or broke it I don't remember what it was and I remember Steve said, yeah, I think I would. And I said, I said, no way I would. I wouldn't give him, said, there's no way I'd let him strike me out on purpose. <laughs> and so we talked, we kept talking about it. And Ed said, I think I would if I could go into the record book <laughs> as the one. And so and so we were sitting there talking. And, and of course, and, and of course, what he, nobody would actually do it. But we, we got up there. And then, of course, you got to the ninth inning. And, uh, uh, McKeon called me up to hit, and so I went up, and we had gotten only a couple of hits. We had no, there was no chance to to beat him without an extra base hit, and it was the only time when I faced Nolan that I went up the ladder with him, uh, and and I struck out. <laughs> I let, and, and because once if you offer if you offered at his pitches, if it got, if you thought it was going to be waist high, by the time it got to you, it was up around your letters. And the ball was just exploding on him, and so I struck out, and I'm, and I, so I guess I went in a tight. I went into the record book, and I went back and, and told Kirkpatrick I didn't try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How about but Spanky? We called him Spanky. Spanky, I love that. We uh, called him Spanky, but he was he was a pretty good hitter, pretty good ball player. He played a number of positions. Uh, it was he was a good teammate. And it was a real tragedy with what happened to him. How about split? Well, Paul was a, Paul was just a wonderful man. I, uh, you know, I, like I said, I drove his car back from uh, from uh, spring training in '74 when I got released, and uh, uh, drove hit the car and my family back from Florida because I, I hadn't exa- I hadn't actually planned on driving with my family, you know, so. Uh, when I went down there. So I ended up uh, coming back with Paul. Paul was a, a great competitor. He was just a fun guy to be around. You know, and he's uh, it's where I learned all about Blue Springs and <laughs> what, yeah. what it was. He always talked about going home out there. And, you know, and he, was a, uh, he was as good of a man as you're going to run into. I just really liked Paul. Yeah. Uh, Ted Abernathy? Same thing. Ted was a great guy. He got his fingernails dirty all the time pitching because <laughs> the way he'd throw the ball down under. But Ted was a Ted was a again. Just I had uh, there were great teammates. I I can't you know I don't really uh, there really weren't uh, guys on the club that that you didn't like. I mean some of them some of you might like more, but uh, there were there were good guys and there were a good bunch of guys to be around. And they were good competitors. I mean, you know, we we won a lot of ball games when when in those those years as an expansion team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last three guys: Lance Clemens. Anything about him stick out? Uh, not a lot. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have a lot to do with Lance, uh, but uh, not not a. You don't have any stories for you on him. Yeah, and then the last two would be Steve Mangori or Joe Horner. Uh, 
not not too much. Now, Joe, a little bit with Joe, but uh, had a there was a uh, if I remember right, we had a they dressed up a was it something. Never mind, it's not going to work. They had a, a like a watermelon one time that put in the uh, in the dugout that dressed up with his number and stuff on it. <laughs> I, it didn't make any sense. Uh, now it won't make any sense to anybody. It, it seemed to be in good taste at the time. <laughs> I, I think it's funny. But, well, I guess I guess the last two questions I have for you overall is: you know, Have you stayed in touch with any of your old Royals teammates at all? You know, over the years. No, I actually, you know, one of the things that happened, I can make a bad joke here. You know, one of the things when I got into medicine, I started using words that are polysyllabic. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I got away from my baseball boys. Uh, but, no, I, I don't, I, I actually, uh, when I got into medicine, uh, you know, when, when I went to med school and then on into residency, I followed the baseball but, and, and occasionally would talk to them. Occasionally I'd go back for some old-timers games. I've been back for a few old-timers games in Chicago, but I haven't been back to anything in, K- in KC. Uh, I've been to, you know, there's a ballpark, and we go back to Kansas City because we owned farms in Chillicothe until 2006. Uh, and so we had a lot of friends. I had, uh, you know, the, the guy named Bill Feeney, uh, who was a farmer up there, used to work for the Royals, or he worked with the Royals, charting pitches and they did computer work, uh, putting all the, the stats on the computers that we would use. And that was back in the 70s. And so all that was pretty new. But so I, I would go back and visit uh, visit those guys. But I didn't really didn't have a lot of contact with, with the ballplayers. Uh, when you got into medicine, that was pretty much a all has been sort of an all-consuming event. And so a lot of my baseball has been as a fan. Uh, you know, I watch the games. I watch Casey. I always check on Casey and how they're doing. And uh, actually, I check on Casey. It's more than I do the White Sox. I identify myself more as Kansas City than I do with White Sox. I love you. Obviously, are a good father. You raised your daughter as a Royals fan, so that means you know good parenting, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. She's she's pretty. She's 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 got a mind of her own. But yeah, she's a she's definitely a Royals fan. Yeah, she liked it. She was very disappointed last night. What? Uh, what other random question? Do you have a favorite baseball card of yourself? A favorite baseball card? Uh, You're in some cool, some cool old looking sets from back in the day. My dad has a lot of those cards, so he's given them to me. Yeah, well, I don't know. The the only one that uh, that I got that's really worth any money is the one uh, that uh, is from '72. Yeah. That was a, where I'm. It's a high number. Yep. I, I yeah. I I have a favorite baseball card, but I don't know which. I, I don't know what happened to it. Uh, I, you got to be careful about base, baseball cards, Dave. You know my my sister. I, I, these people who go after baseball cards, I kind of wonder about them sometimes. My sister uh, in Kansas City. Uh, she went on eBay, and I don't know why she did it. Why she didn't call me? She decided she'd buy a baseball card, so she took like my the 74 card or something like that, it's worth 25 cents. And so she offered to buy it. It was for sale for 50 cents or something. Well, some other guy bid for it. And then so, then so she bid for it. And this bidding went back and forth for some time until the guy bought the card 
for $55. <laughs> now, anybody that's listening in, in, in the world of radio, yeah. don't ever do that. <laughs> Those cards are worth 25 cents. $55. Wow. She laughed. I mean, she sent me the trail of bids. <laughs> it, was, it was, it actually, the guy bought a $25 card for $55. Now, that card is actually worth $55 if you can find it. So I do have one card that's worth $55. It's out there somewhere. <laughs> do you get, do you still sign a lot of those in the mail and stuff, like autograph them? Yeah, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess, apparently, I think you probably know that there's uh, someone publishes a book of of players who will sign cards. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I've always I've always felt a little funny about uh, ask. I mean, if I if I go someplace and they're supposed to pay me to sign cards or or pay me a stipend to do stuff, I'll do that. But uh, I've never charged for signing cards. I've always thought it was one of the really neat perks. Uh, of playing, and I was just been flattered that somebody would want my autograph. I read an article once about one of your former teammates that won't sign autographs for like less than ten thousand dollars. <laughs> Did you know Dr. Mike Marshall at all with the Dodgers? Yeah, I knew Mike. <laughs> I've read some article that he won't sign for like less than like a small fortune, which I was like, what? So anyway, <laughs> well, he probably doesn't sign too many cards, then does he? No, <laughs> no, not too. There's not too many out there. Well, thanks. Yeah, so no, I yeah, I knew Mike. Uh, I knew him. Before he was with the Dodgers, then when he was with the Dodgers, right? So, uh, but I, no, I don't, I don't charge in, uh, for, uh, for that. I think that, you know, and I don't criticize players who do. I mean, it's, uh, it's the way that a lot of the guys make their living. I mean, they're professional athletes and entertainers, and so that's that's fair game. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to both play baseball and make my living uh, other ways. Too, and you know, so I don't. I just don't do that. What I worry about are the people that want my autograph on prescription pads. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, you gotta watch that nowadays with all the drug abuse and everything. (laughs) Oh gosh! Well, very last thing for you. What would you like to say to Royals fans listening in closing? Well, just enjoy. Uh, I mean, look. uh, As bad as you feel when you when you get beat. Uh, there's only two teams got there, and they got there, and they got there because they played great baseball. And you and and I, uh, all I can say see is that with the age of those players and with the way they play right now, uh, Kansas City and and you Kansas City fans have got a lot to look forward to. I guess I think you're going to see a lot uh, of continued good baseball, and I suspect it's going to get better. Because these guys really look good. They had a fantastic season, and I just couldn't be happier for the city. I had I had friends come back actually, uh, who live just outside of who, one of my best friends here. They're from Missouri, and uh, they grew up there. And they just came back, and they brought me the St. Joe's newspapers when uh, when the Royals clinched the uh, uh, the ALC, oh, the ALCS. Cool. And it's it's really nice to see that newspaper with all those uh, blue blue and white uh, uh, pictures on the front. Uh, Just remember, my wife says that I've been lucky enough that she thinks that I played uh, for clubs that have the prettiest uniforms. (laughs) She said she she liked the the Chicago White Sox pinstripes when I came up. They're they're slimming, aren't they? They make you look skinny. 
Yeah, well, yeah, that, well, that's one of the few times that's ever happened, too, you know. <laughs> so, so, and the other was the Royals and the Dodgers. They have beautiful, they, they both have fundamentally the same kind of beautiful uniforms. Yeah. And, and, and I tell you, that ballpark and, and the way that it looked with the players on the field, it just was gorgeous. Yeah. I can't, couldn't be happier for the city. They should just rejoice in how great, what a great season it was. Yeah, it really brought the city back together, and the crime rate was down like 400% the last month. <laughs> so. Well, they got something to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people aren't, uh, I guess they're happy drunks instead of upset drunks, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, that is something that just disturbs me, though. I'm, I, I would like to think that had the Royals win last night, they wouldn't have set the town no, on fire. No, they wouldn't have. And, and I was very proud of how they handled it with class and said the better team won and congratulated, not like the Baltimore fans and players, but that's a different story. <laughs> I agree. But anyway, it was, it was seriously an honor to talk to you. And, you know, I've, I've heard great stories about you from my dad and, and read about you and all that good stuff. And hopefully one of these days you'll be back here and we can grab some lunch or, or see a game if you visit your sister or whatever. And I'm, I'm hoping that the Royals have bigger and better things and hoping to stay in touch. And, and thank you so much for all you gave to the Royals organization and for the, for the great chat. Well, thank you, David. How, why don't we say next year, next fall in Kansas City, man? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm all. I'm down. I'll be here. Series in Kansas City. I'll be here. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye bye.